1: The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17. If you would turn there, I would like to read them for you. We're going to focus. We're going to look, uh, make a few general comments about the Ten Commandments and then look at the first of the Ten Commandments tonight, God willing. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 6 days you shall labor and do all your work, but the 7th day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in 6 days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them but he rested on the 7th day therefore the Lord blessed the 7th day or the Sabbath day and made it holy honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So this is the Ten Commandments. Now God obviously gave many commandments uh, to the Jews after these Ten Commandments, but these are set apart as unique and special in a number of ways. Only the Ten Commandments were literally spoken by God, by the voice of God, on Mount Sinai with all of the awesome emblems of his great and mighty power and of his powerful wrath. You remember the setting and how God revealed himself out of the cloud and the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake and all of those emblems of his great power. These were the words God spoke to Israel at the time. And so that's one way that the Ten Commandments are unique. It says in chapter 20, verse 1 here at the beginning, and God spoke all these words. These were spoken by the voice of God, audible to the people. Uh, You remember that after this they asked that God speak no further words to them because they were afraid that they would die if they continued to hear the very voice of God. And so from then on God spoke through Moses and after that through the prophet that God would raise up, a series of prophets, ultimately the Lord Jesus, the final prophet, the final word to us. But God spoke these words in the hearing of the people. Uh, the same is repeated for us in Deuteronomy 5:22. This is Moses' recalling of that moment. It said, these are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. So that's something that's very interesting. Uh, Moses is emphasizing that he spoke these out of the darkness and the fire and the cloud, and he added nothing more. Obviously, later on, God added many more commandments. All of the Pentateuch, uh, the commandments, the law of Moses were uh, the law of God, uh, spoken through Moses. But these were set apart as unique and different at the beginning. Secondly, only the Ten Commandments were written directly by the finger of God onto physical stone, carved by God himself. This is the beginning, I believe, of the scripture, the beginning of what it is we have now for us, the Bible, uh, the beginning of the written word of God. And it started with the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 31.18, it says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed, by the finger of God. Now that's an awesome thing when you think about it. The actual writing of God. God intended that his word be spoken first and then written down so that the people would read it. An unchanging testimony of his commandments for the people. It says in Exodus 32:16, the tablets were the work of God. So that's an interesting thing. The actual first tablets themselves were made by God Himself. Now, when Moses confronted the idolatry of his people, you know, he threw those tablets down and they were destroyed. The second tablets were written, were were um, made by Moses, but the first tablets were actually made by God Himself. And it says the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. So there we have God's actual handwriting. What an incredible thing that is! And so the Ten Commandments are unique for this second reason. The third reason the Ten Commandments were unique is that only the Ten Commandments, of all the many commandments God gave to Israel, only the Ten Commandments were put into the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets were actually put into the Ark of the Covenant, which itself became the mercy seat on which the blood of the sacrifice would be poured by the high priest. Uh, The blood of the sacrifice were poured out onto the gold uh, Ark of the Covenant, onto the mercy seat, and under that, that's where the actual tablets of stone were, the Ten Commandments. Now, this was a representative, a representation, let's say, of the throne, the governmental throne by which God ruled his people. That's where the blood was put, and so in effect, this was the basis of God's rule over his people. And it wasn't until the tabernacle was established and the ark uh, was built that God formally took up his obvious uh, glorious rule in the center of the people. A.W. Pink puts it this way, thus did the Lord establish and signify to Israel that the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments was the basis of his governmental dealings with them. This is the basis of his rule over them. The climax in the end of the book of Exodus, if you look over with me at Exodus 40, uh, verse 33 and following this is the end of the entire book we may never get there brothers and sisters but anyway we can jump ahead and read some of it that's my intention to get there some point but um, Exodus 40 33 and following it says then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard and so Moses finished the work then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. And so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travel. So the focus on the tabernacle, and at the center of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, and in the center of the Ark was the Ten Commandments, and so this is not a minor thing. So for these three reasons, we believe that the Ten Commandments are unique and special of all the many commandments that God gave to Israel. Now why do we call them the Ten Commandments? By my own count, as I went through these verses, I counted 14 separate commandments that God gives. Why do we call them the Ten Commandments? Uh, Obviously, later, as as we look more carefully, we're going to see more and more commandments. Some rabbis counted over 600. But these are the Ten Commandments, and so they are called in many places. Probably the number one reason that they're called the Ten Commandments is that's what the Bible calls them. And uh, that's good enough for me, isn't it good enough for you? So if the Bible calls it the Ten Commandments, uh, we should just fit in line, fall in line, and just call them the same. If you look at Exodus 34:28, or just listen with me, it says, "And there Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights without eating bread or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant." the Ten Commandments. So there it is, right, in Exodus 34, verse 28. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy 4:13. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then he wrote them on two stone tablets. And then third in Deuteronomy 10, 4. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments he had proclaimed uh, to you on the mountain, out of the fire, on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. So I think the Ten Commandments really are ten headings and under the ten headings are some secondary commandments or related commandments under that heading. For example, the commandment not to covet anything that belongs to your neighbor has a series of sub commandments that are related to that same heading of not coveting. But there's just uh, ten commandments total. Now, the Ten Commandments themselves I think should be broken into two different tables or categories. The first table is the first four covenant, uh, first four commandments, and the second is the uh, six, uh, the last six. Christ himself summarized all of the law of Moses, all of the law of God in this way. Uh, an expert of the law asked him this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I think this is a good way also to arrange the Ten Commandments, don't you? The first four commandments are a way or the way that we can or that the Israelites could love the Lord their God with all of their heart. You shall have no other gods before me or beside me. Uh, You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord and remember the Sabbath day by keeping it Holy. These four focus on Israel's relationship with their creator God, with their redeemer, with God himself. And so this is the way that Israel would show their love for God by obeying these four commandments. This is the very way that they refuse to show love for God throughout their history, very tragically. They did not love God because they did not hold to these four commandments. The last six commandments are the way that we can and do love other people and the way the Israelites were commanded to love other people. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are under the heading of loving your neighbor. However, I think we notice that Jesus' commandment is much more positive and therefore more more difficult to obey, isn't it? A series of you shall nots, you can actually kind of get away with saying, I've obeyed all of those. I've never done any of the nots in there. Well, Jesus, of course, intensifies these commandments when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but anyone who's angry with his brother is in danger of condemnation. Um, But uh, Jesus' summary of the commandments, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Can you really say, even for a single day, that you've kept those two commandments? They're positive commandments and therefore harder to obey. These ten commandments, therefore, have uh, many negative aspects. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. There's boundaries put around Israel's behavior. So that's an overview of the Ten Commandments. Let's look carefully at this first commandment, commandment number one, verse two and three. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God begins by identifying himself by his mighty covenant name. Now, how to pronounce this name is difficult. Uh, We believe that Yahweh would be perhaps a way to uh, pronounce it. This is what it looks like. Can you see it right there? No, you can't. But there it is. The Y H V H what we call the tetragrammaton. Okay, that's the four-letter designation of the Lord. This is by far and away, nothing else is even close to it. The most common designation of God in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. Six thousand plus times these four four four-letter, the tetragrammaton appears. Six thousand times. Nothing else even close. Elohim, the word that we translate God, maybe around 2,000, and everything else drops off after that. There are many names for God, aren't there? Many designations because of his immense person and his character. So many names for God. This is his favorite name. This is the name by which the authors and the prophets, the the writers, all of them consistently refer to God again and again by this holy name. Yahweh, I think, is the most common English pronunciation. Now, the Jews so revered, I think almost superstitiously, the name of God, that they would never even seek to pronounce the name Yahweh. They would never even try to to deal with the four letters the way that they would ordinarily be dealt with in other Hebrew words. Instead, they constantly read the word Adonai in its place. Adonai is a more common word for uh, my Lord, lowercase l. Now, it's interesting, whenever you see the uh, the capital letters capital L, capital O, R and D. those four letters together in most English translations that's what they do with the with the tetragrammaton, with the Yahweh designation. That's this name that we're looking at. That's his covenant name and it's all over the place, isn't it? I mean if you look here uh, in your Bible, look at verse 2, I am the Lord your God at least in my version, there they are capital four capital letters. Whenever you see that, well that's the, the this covenant name of God. Now, the Jews, interestingly, so revered this name that they say Adonai in its place. For example, the Shema in in, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Yisrael, uh, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad is how they would say it. Uh, you heard some of it a week ago. So I figured we'd just keep the tradition of speaking Hebrew uh, going. But I listened, and every time that he was quoting, you would hear Adonai frequently. This is, what, this is the word that they would use for God, because they did not want to misuse the name of the Lord. Um, it was God's covenant name, and again and again he affixes this verbal formula to the commands. I am the Lord. That's why you should do things. Now, this is a very common thing. Uh, he said it to Abraham. He said in Genesis 15, 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. He said it to Jacob in his dream at Bethel. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. He says it again and again. His reason for doing things, the plagues, so that they will know that I am the Lord. This is one of his number one motivations. If you look at Leviticus, for example, Leviticus 19, take a minute and look there. We're going to see God giving us the reason again and again why we should do this or the Jews should do this or that in the commands. In Leviticus 19.1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see that? Okay, so you're going to be holy because the Lord is holy. Because I am holy, you must be holy. But then it says this, Each of you must respect his mother and father and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. It just says it. You you must do such and such, I am the Lord. And then verse 4, do not turn to idols or make uh, gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. And then down at verse 10, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and alien. I am the Lord your God. And then again in verse 12, uh, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Verse 14, do not curse the deaf or put a a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear you, God. I am the Lord. And then in verse 16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord, and so on. This is a very common thing. Again and again, in effect, God says, this is who I am, and therefore you should behave a certain way, because I am the Lord, so you should be holy. Uh, after God says, I am the Lord, your God, he's using his covenant name, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This He identifies himself in this way uh, as the God who has redeemed them, who's brought them out of slavery by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, God could have begun with creation as he does in other places he could have said for example i am the lord who created the sun the moon the stars the earth and everything in them I, I am the lord your god who knit you together in your mother's womb or i am the lord who did such and such and such and such he does this for example in isaiah 44:24. this is what the lord says your redeemer who formed you in the womb i am the lord who has made all things who alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by myself. And so the argument would go like this. I created the universe and everything in it. There was no other God at that time, and thus no other God should be worshipped than me. And that's the very argument he makes again and again in Isaiah. There was no one with me at the time. Trust me, I was there. I was alone. I alone created the heavens and the earth, and I had no assistance from any created being. I alone, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, eternally triune, I or we, it's hard to use language in this matter, but I created the heavens and the earth alone, and therefore you shall have no other gods before me. There weren't any when I created heaven and earth. All other gods are false. Isaiah 43.10, he says, Before me, no god was formed, nor will there be any after me. I'm the only one. There's no other God. Or Isaiah 45, 18. This is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He said, I am the Lord and there is no other. This is the solitary claim of God based on creation. Creation. He was the only one who made anything. He's the only God there was at the time. There's been no God formed after him, and therefore, he's the only one that should be worshipped. He could do this, and this is a valid line of reasoning. Same thing in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding. No one can fathom. And then 43:15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. And like he says to Job in Job 38.4, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Now he could do the same thing with Molech or with any of the other gods. Where were you? You didn't exist because you're nothings. You don't exist. There is no other god besides me. So this whole line of reasoning God could have taken here in the Ten Commandments because I created heaven and earth and there was no other god with me at the time. You shall have no other gods before me. He does this in uh, the, the approach that Paul takes with the Gentiles. In uh, Acts 17, 24 through 27, the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What is the point that Paul's making there? That God alone created the heavens and the earth, and he's not served by idols, he's not served by the works of human hands, therefore, he alone should be the God you worship. This is the approach he takes with the Gentiles, but he doesn't use that here in the Ten Commandments. Why not? Because I think that God tends to appeal to uh, what the highest level of redemption that he's done for us as a basis of our relationship with him. In other words, the more God does for you, the higher is your level of commitment, should be the higher your level of commitment to him. So he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. For, for that reason you shall have no other gods before me. You owe me everything. You owe me everything. I am the creator, yes, but I'm more than that. I am your redeemer, and therefore I am your king. The principle is given to us in Luke 12:48: From everyone who has been given much, much is what? Expected. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You know what that makes me do? It makes me realize how much more I have in Christ than the Jews had at Sinai. Think about that. Couldn't God say to us, I am the Lord who sent my only begotten son to die in your place, who shed his blood for you, who took all of your sins on himself. You shall have no other gods before me. And I think that's exactly what he would say to us if you were giving us the, the version of the exact same command. But here he appeals to the exodus Now, what is the commandment that he's giving them here? Exactly what is he commanding? Well, he says, no other gods before me. Some think this means I need to be number one among your pantheon of gods. And I think that this is almost exactly what the Israelites did think. Oh, yes, we worship Yahweh, and we give him the highest place, but we've got all of these other gods, too. We want to cover every base, you know. We want to be sure that we don't leave anyone out. But, of course, we give the highest place to our national deity, Yahweh. And some people even take it that way. It implies polytheism and syncretism are okay, just as long as Yahweh is number one. But uh, is this really what God is saying here? Doesn't he say, in effect, no other gods, period, no other gods beside me, before me, in front of me at all? The fact is, I think the literal translation, no other gods in my sight, I think is what it means, literally. I don't want to see you before me worshipping any other god. That means absolutely no other God should take your heart in your place, uh, the place in the heart designed for me. Isaiah, sorry, Exodus 20, verse 23, it says, You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make them for yourself. Now, later in the Ten Commandments, he's going to explain why. It's interesting to me that the explanation is given in connection with the idolatry command, but look down at verse uh, five. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Well, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Now, I remember when I was a pastor in Topsfield, Massachusetts, there was a a Jewish uh, woman who was the religion uh, writer for the local newspaper, and she came and interviewed me, and we had an interesting conversation. And... She said, "Well, I think that the whole thing has been misunderstood. I think really what God meant to say there or what we should have understood, I'm a zealous God, you see. God would never be jealous. He's a zealous God." And I said, "Well, what is he zealous for?" Exactly. And uh, she said, well, uh, she had trouble answering that because she had only thought one step. You know, she thought, well, jealousy is a bad thing. You know, people shouldn't be jealous. And so we'll just go with the zealous, jealous thing. I said, well, I think God is zealous. He's zealous for his own name and his own glory. And he's not going to let anybody else worship be worshipped but him because he's the only one that, that deserves worship. He's the only God there is. Oh. I said, yes, he's very jealous. He's, he's, he's like a consuming fire of jealousy. And that's part of the whole the whole history of Israel is that they were constantly angering God by their false deities and by their false gods. So this is what I think it means, that we are not to worship God, any other God except him. Well, what does it mean, though, to have only one God? Well, I think it we have to understand what our God is. Is it not that which is our ultimate pleasure and treasure and focus and center of our lives without which our lives would be utterly worthless and meaningless? Isn't that what our God is, what we worship as the number one thing in the center of our lives? I think that's what it is. Now, I believe that this is a temptation for all of us. I think syncretism, namely having many gods, is a problem for every generation. Now, you may not have the same little deities that I saw our Shinto friends uh, in Japan have, the little gods or the other representations, and we'll talk about um, idolatry, God willing, next time. But we still have idols. We have other gods in our hearts, don't we? Those things that become the focus of our lives, that become the center around which we uh, revolve our lives. This is a problem for every generation. It was a problem for Abraham. Abraham's father was a polytheist. It says in uh, Joshua 24.2, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. That's how the whole thing started. They're always worshipping false gods and false deities. And so also, we are tempted in the same direction. Israel was constantly wrestling with the issue of syncretism and polytheism. All, all through their history, they are worshiping Yahweh and seeking to worship as well other gods. Second Kings seventeen forty one. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did, worshiping Yahweh and worshiping other gods as well. This is the very thing that is excluded, I believe, in the first commandment. Now, what about us? What are our other gods? Well, recently in preaching in Philippians 3, you know, uh, it says there in verse 19, their destiny is destruction, their god is their stomach. Ah, the famous stomach god. What is the stomach god? Well, I don't think you'd want to make a, an idol to the stomach god, although I think Buddha is pretty close. Have you ever seen some of the little statues of Buddha? The biggest stomach I've ever seen in my life is this big Buddha statue that we saw on uh, Awaji Island. You remember that? Big stomach. Uh, And I don't think it's an accident. There's a representation that he is a happy kind of being who's fed his appetites as long as he's existed. And I think that can very much be a god for some people. The feeding of fleshly passions and appetites and desires. And so you have to ask for yourself, I think, the number one diagnostic question with this first commandment. What is the center of your life? What, what is that which, if it's removed, your whole life would crumble? It would fall apart? What do you spend the most time thinking about and dreaming about? When you have a free moment, what does your mind gravitate to? When you have free time, what do you do with it? What is your God? Are there other gods that you are kind of bowing down before in the altar of your heart? What is your ultimate hope? What do you think about when you think about heaven? Do you think about being with God? Is God your shield and your very great reward, as he is for Abram in Genesis 15? Or is there some other thing you're looking forward to and hoping for? What is the true center of your world? This is your God. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the ends of the earth, the God who brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and even more, the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. He is the only God there is. And he claims by right the center of your life. You must give it to him and so must I. We must bow before him and before no other God beside him.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org